this is the Stand Alone Podcast. When I got the email saying that it was going to be a series of podcasts, I just sort of thought, oh my God, that's going to be so helpful. I can't wait for that to come out because I know I'm going to need that. So definitely this is hopefully going to be really, really great. I've always just found so much power in people's stories and even if you can't relate to like every single bit, like it's just so powerful. My name's Jay and I'm producing this podcast series for Standalone UK, supporting estranged adults in everyday life. I never felt like I belonged in that house. I just always felt like I needed to get away. Like I wasn't happy with what I was being taught. I wasn't happy with the way that I just always knew that this life that they've got set out for me, this is not for me. It's not for me. And I just, yeah, this innate feeling that I just need to get away. You know, I'm trying to find compassion with it all. So I'm like, I, I clearly see she had issues herself, which just meant that she was just a real bully. But in our culture, it's hard to pick up on that kind of thing. Across these episodes, 10 participants who have very kindly offered to share their experiences of family estrangement. I'm trying to like unlearn a lot of really awful self-sabotaging coping mechanisms, which was a lot of my 20s and childhood, really. When I have the the really dark thoughts, I, I talk to somebody, I'll phone a friend, I'll talk to my partner, I'll go and make an appointment with a therapist. That is like my coping mechanism now. No two experiences of estrangement are the same, but hopefully throughout this podcast series, you'll hear useful ideas to take away whether they're similar journeys or contrasting opinions. Because of the job I am in, I write about things and talk about things and perform things and wrote about, yeah, being in this dilemma with my family and I spoke about all of that. They read it. They weren't happy. Obviously, they weren't happy. Hello. Hello, how are you doing? I'm doing well, how about yourself? Yeah, I'm good, thank you. Superb. Oh, it's a bit chilly in this uh, in this building. Yeah, tell me about it. It's coming from the cold and now I feel like my ear hurts. I think my ears got too cold, I think, and now I've come into a really warm house. <laughs> but it's all right. Are you wearing like a hat or anything like that? No, but when I went out and I started walking to town, I was like, oh, this is hat weather, actually. Shit. <laughs> Yeah, um, I would have saved my ears, but yeah, it creeps upon you, you see. It does. It's like, (laughs) On today's episode of the Standalone Podcast, we're meeting Mina. For years following university, Mina was in what she called a semi-estrangement from her family. She'd call, she'd check in, she'd visit, but as occasionally as she could. But it's only after she fully cut contact with her family a year and a half ago that she experienced a significant improvement in her mental health. As we'll hear from Mina's journey. Hi, I'm Mina and I work in the arts. I've been estranged from my family for just over a year now. So it's all quite new. It's a hard career, isn't it? A career where you need to really be self-motivating. Lots of ups and downs anyway, in terms of sort of being self-employed. And yeah, so it's really hard, but like, I wouldn't change it. I love it. I find myself having, having a, I don't know if you do, but having a talk to myself probably like an, every couple of months, which is a, what am I doing with my life talk? Um <laughs> 
luckily I have some good people around me who say this is what you're doing and you're doing fine it's just you know being self-employed anyway is difficult and then add to that being in, a, in an industry that's like the arts which is just very difficult you know it's just hard anything worth doing is hard right yeah absolutely and also I guess it's something that you are really passionate about and that you will throw yourself into it's sort of like a hobby that's become a job in a in a good way yeah I think what's made it harder as I've gotten older and uh, been to lots of therapy I've realized that gosh if you don't have that family support from an early age I think that just makes things 10 times harder than perhaps it needs to be. It's almost like it really is all on you. You've got to tell yourself to keep going because there's this massive part of your past where, you know, people haven't believed in you and just told you not to go in that direction. Yeah, that is just an added thing that makes it a lot harder. Yeah. I mean, like you say, anybody who is self-employed, it's about that self-motivation and determination. Yeah. And then you say that throughout your life, people didn't, I'm assuming your family didn't believe in you. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it comes partly down to culture as well, I think. It's just not a industry that they get, you know. In my family, it was different. Education itself wasn't really a big thing, especially being a girl. My parents really didn't believe in educating us. They weren't educated themselves. They were illiterate themselves as well. And they just felt like, as girls, we should just get married, really. I'm the youngest of the pack, very large family. All of my siblings went the same way, you know, got married quite young and stuff. I was the one that sort of said no. And I knew from a really early age, I remember just big age gap between me and my older sister, almost like 20 years. I just remember just at her wedding and just being really sad and crying my eyes out. And I think people thought it was because my older sister was leaving the house. And it wasn't. It was because even at that age of five, I was like, this is what's for me, this is what my future's going to be, and I don't want it to be, you know, and I just knew then, I didn't know what that looked like, but I knew that I didn't want it to be that. Just to have an education was a massive fight in our house, so I've got two sisters that did end up going to university out of the nine of us, and uh, that was a massive fight, that was a massive fight they had on their hands, school had to get involved and stuff, because my parents just didn't believe that girls should go to university, because it would corrupt them. And then they did business degrees, at least. And then after that, I want to do a drama degree. <laughs> and uh, you would have thought that I wanted to go and sell drugs or something, or commit armed robberies or something like that. That's how bad it was. It was like I was just bringing this shame on the family for wanting to go away to uni and do this career that they just didn't get. And even until recently, you know, my mum sort of always said, I don't know how to tell people what you do. I'm just very embarrassed. I'm very embarrassed to tell people what you do. I kind of get where they're coming from, but at the same time, it's just, I also don't get it really. It's like they're giving themselves extra stress for something that's really not something they need to get stressed about. But yeah. You said that university, your parents believe that it would corrupt you. Yeah. What do you mean? I mean, what do they mean by corrupt? (laughs) Yeah, it's just a really old fashioned cultural thing, I think. And seeing it from their point of view as two people who never went to school, never learned to read and write didn't learn to read and write in their own language let alone English coming to this country and learning English so I guess you fear what you don't know they'd hear these stories of other children who had gone to university and then they ended up getting a boyfriend or a girlfriend marrying out of the religion marrying out of the caste that kind of thing you know you get educated you start realizing the world's a bigger place than 
the four walls of your house and the things that your parents have taught you and maybe you come back and go oh those beliefs that you have they're not quite right for this day and age actually their biggest fear was marrying somebody out of the culture I think that was their number one biggest fear and, and leaving home before getting married and of course the big one going and getting pregnant you know so they would hear from other aunties and uncles at the temple that so-and-so's daughter went to university left home and now she has a white boyfriend and you know all that that kind of stuff that's what they were scared of once you give them a bit of freedom, that's it. They'll just bring shame on the family and all those sorts of things, you know, getting married out of the culture, having a kid before you're married and marrying someone who's not Asian, I think, was the biggest thing in my family anyway. My dad would always say, you know, don't put a stain on my turban, you know, you're going to stain this house if we give you too much freedom. And I remember being at university and my older sister calling me in my final year because I was determined to move away straight after university. Moved to the big smoke. And I remember her sort of saying, you don't, you don't move away. You come back home now. You've had your freedom. And I remember sort of having this argument saying, I didn't realise there was a, a cap on my freedom. Or maybe I'm making a sweeping statement in terms of our culture, because I know I've got friends whose parents are completely different. And my parents are just very, very old fashioned. They would say, it's not your life, it's your parents' life. You know, you work for your parents, everything you do reflects on your parents. It's it's all about living for your parents, really, and not, and not living your own life and just doing what they do. My father passed away quite a few years ago, and I just finished university and working away and stuff. And I remember my sister sort of saying to me, well, at least I can hold my head up high and know that I always did everything to make dad proud. And it was a real sort of sting to kind of go, you didn't. And uh, that kind of stayed with me in a kind of way to blame me for his death because I moved away and I wasn't there. So yeah, there was that sort of power play in the house kind of going on. You're talking about this power play between your other siblings. How many brothers and sisters do you have? Um, there's nine of us all together. Nine? <laughs> yeah. Wow. Yeah. That's incredible. Yeah. Are you in contact with any of them at this no. stage? No, it's all. And all the nieces and nephews and everything as well. So yeah. There's, there's half siblings in there as well. So my dad was married twice and actually he was estranged from them. So that's interesting, isn't it? Five girls all together in my family. And I'm the youngest of obviously all of them. I didn't grow up with the other four. They're, they're a lot older than me. Like they could be my parents. My dad was very old when he had me like into his 60s. So he had issues with his first lot of kids. To me, that's really, really interesting that he was estranged from his own family before. Mm. Do you think there's anything in that, perhaps? Yeah, well, I didn't realise how much of a thing that was until I came across Standalone and I started to read into all the research and stuff. And then I realised that it is a thing that can sort of like run in families. And also so I've got some friends who have a sibling that they're estranged from or an aunt they don't speak to. Yeah, and then it happens again later on in the family and I realise, oh, okay, so there is a kind of link and I don't know whether the link is like is the link that it kind of it makes it okay like it is a big thing but at the same time oh well didn't speak to those kids so it's kind of not a big deal to then remove yourself but I just sort of wondered whether the more it happens in your own family the more it just becomes a thing that's kind of done because if it happens at one point then the initial mm shock of it being an all-encompassing thing has already gone that first time yeah you mentioned that you went to university was it at university when your father passed away just after just after a few years after yeah 
And had you moved away after university? I did, yeah. Yeah, as soon as I left home for university, I remember getting in that car with my sister. She was driving me to uni. I remember looking back at the house and thinking, I am never coming back. I am never coming back. Now, the estrangement didn't happen then. It's been many years. And I never felt like I wanted to be estranged. Like I saw how difficult it was that my dad didn't speak to the kids from his first marriage. That did cause a lot of hurt. Sometimes they were in our life. I do remember them being in my life when I was really young, and then they weren't. Arguments had happened, and I think that they they weren't happy that he'd married again and that kind of thing. They didn't like us, his new set of kids that apparently he loved more than them, that kind of thing. I mean, I don't know. I was young, so I might be just making things up now. I'm not too sure. And I think just when I went away to university, which was a massive hoo-ha, me getting away to uni, that was a... That was a massive battle of me really having to fight to go away to university. That was really hard. I have to move away and I can't go back because as soon as I go back, I know it's just about marriage and I didn't want that. So I moved away. So after uni finished, I just moved to London and just worked and went home very rarely, but called home a lot. Be the dutiful daughter, check in, call home a lot. So you made it to the big smoke. Yeah. Yeah, moved out of the big smoke now, but it was a great decade. I'm assuming that making these phone calls back to home and the occasional visiting as well must have been really quite challenging on occasion. Really challenging. And weirdly, it's not until this has all stopped that I've realised like what weight has been lifted off my shoulders. I used to say to friends that whenever I go home, I just revert back to, I would say, my teenage self. But in our culture, it's like <laughs> parents are allowed to speak to you like that type of type of thing. And you're never allowed to question it, really. And if you do question it, it's like, oh, who the hell do you think you are? But she was a real bully and always speaking down to me. And yeah, I would just revert back to this really quiet, just half version of myself, really. Every time I would call her, I would always have to just check my mental health. Can I deal with her today? Because if I can't, then... I, you know, would slip into really, really dark depression for a few days. But her favourite thing to always say to me at every phone call was, what did I do to deserve to have a daughter like you? You don't know how to love. You don't know what love is. And what have I done in my life to deserve somebody like you? You're just the worst. And this was, and it's not until I stopped calling her. I thought, why do I feel so much lighter? It's weird. It's weird. Like, I'm really sad about everything. But in my soul, I know that it's the right thing because I feel like this weight's been lifted. And I thought, oh, wow, it's because I don't have somebody telling me that I'm a really awful person every day. Oh, wow. OK. I always knew how challenging. But um, since looking back and speaking to somebody professionally and I really kind of being able to unpick the day to day grind of it all, I realised just how panicked I would become before going home. And after a visit, you know, how depressed I would be. And it seems so stupid, but I never really saw a link between this depression that I would always have or this anxiety disorder that I would always have. And it seems really stupid because now I look back and kind of go, oh, that's why. And why haven't I been suffering from that so badly recently? Oh, it's because that's not there anymore. Yeah. Was there a moment then when you decided to not call and not visit again? Well, it all came to a head. Okay, so kind of going back. So 
um, not properly estranged, but I guess you could kind of say semi-estranged for like a, about you know, sort of 10 years as in going home was like less and less probably like three times in a year twice a year if I could help it barely spoke to my sisters really I just kind of kept in touch with my mom out of duty I kind of used the excuse of my mom doesn't know any better I'm trying to find compassion for her but my sisters my sisters they do know better and they should know better they choose to live in this very closed kind of judgmental world maybe I'm judging by by judging them as well but yeah I just sort of feel that they could really have my back on stuff and they don't so for instance I do have a partner and we're not married and he's not Asian so that was a massive thing and I told them about him about 10 years ago and sort of the cliche outcome where people stop speaking to me for a little bit and they were just like this is the worst thing you could do you're awful how embarrassing my mother was saying he's not allowed to come to this house and all all this sort of stuff and and I didn't want to meet him and I was thinking over the years maybe this will get better maybe this will get better but it was almost like it didn't exist to the point of sometimes they try to arrange meetings with other men for me and I was like you know that I'm with this person how dare you still trying to arrange my marriage so I quickly put a stop to that but I thought that was really rude and horrible anyway so 10 years later I'm a lot older not this scared 21 year old anymore and I just sort of feel this is getting rude now this is getting really rude either you accept him or this is it really I kind of wrote about that because of the job I am in I write about things and talk about things and perform things and wrote about yeah being in this dilemma with my family and within the piece of writing that I did I also talked about a lot of the childhood traumas and I was sort of linking it to you know my mental health and stuff like that and I started looking into how childhood trauma can affect your adult self and stuff and so there was alcoholism in my family and there was a lot of domestic violence in my family and I spoke about all of that they read it they weren't happy obviously they weren't happy some people sort of said oh why didn't you consult them and I just sort of thought well I don't speak to them we don't have that relationship and also it's my story and I should be allowed to tell my story a lot of people said is is there a bit of you that wanted them to read it and of course at the time I was thinking oh god I hope they don't but I think I did because we weren't really you know there was probably a semi-estrangement there because we didn't speak we don't have that relationship I'm not close with them at all with any of my siblings obviously if I'd spoken to them about what I wanted to do there would have been a no because everything about my career was always a no they never supported it at all and I just sort of thought this is what I want to do and I need to write about this and I think because I knew I couldn't speak to them this was my way of speaking to them about how everything that's happened in the family has really affected me and I think on a very naive level I thought they would read it and they'd go oh man wow we never knew this kind of lovely sort of American sitcom thing where I think they all kind of rally around and go, yeah, let's talk about this. Because actually we're all suffering. Because even though they sit there and they say, we're okay with our upbringing, I don't know what your problem is. They're not okay. They're not okay. It's clear. They all have massive health issues and mental health issues. They all do. But yeah, I thought that's what they would do. But instead, I got the how dare you, how dare you air our dirty laundry? Who the hell do you think you are? Well, we all have the same upbringing and we're all okay. So I don't know what your problem is. Clearly, you weren't happy growing up. I sort of sat there and sort of thought, oh, God, God, did I make it up? Have I made all of this up? Why is it that I've had such a 
problem all my life with my mental health. You know, it is me. So much guilt, so much shame. I was just really shamed, basically. None of them said I made it up. They just said I had a no right. I had no right talking about it. You know, it all came to a front and that was it. That was it. That was a big cut off. It was cut off from both sides, really. And it's been nothing since. In this episode, we talk about a creative project that's very much at the centre of Mina's estrangement experience. And for Becca Bland, the founder and CEO of the standalone charity, it was writing that article in The Guardian and the reception that she received from readers that kick-started the initiative to create the standalone charity in the first place. So I think there's a couple of things to respond to here in Mina's story. The first is the right to have a perspective. And I think that's something that we don't often give other family members the space to have a perspective. And sometimes there is one dominant narrative from what in the family culture about what has happened growing up. And it could be that everyone feels that it was a very happy childhood and that everything was very good, everything was fine, and that if anybody else has got a perspective that's different, that's their problem. And that's often, I think, the basis for gaslighting people and saying that their feelings are not grounded in any kind of truth. But actually what Mina's saying is that this is her perspective, this is her experience, and it's very valid for her to express her experience with the hope that she would gain some understanding from the people who she feels has hurt her. Some people are not often in the right place to be able to hear something different or that somebody else has had a very different experience of their upbringing to them and it could be with siblings that's very common that some people or some siblings might feel that everything was fine whereas another person might feel that it really wasn't but they've had a very different experience and that's their personal right to have their own perspective and then I think secondly it can be very hard for people to tell their story And people need to really think about before they tell their story, why they're telling their story. And I say this from the perspective of probably not thinking it through enough in my own case. It was something very instinctual that I did and something that was part of my own process of healing was to write the article that I wrote for The Guardian. And I certainly didn't write it as a campaign piece. I would never have imagined where it has taken me now. And I do think there was an element that I bared a lot of my feelings about my relationship with my parents and what I was going through as part of the estrangement far too soon. I'm very glad I did. I would never take it back. But I think it's worth understanding for yourself. Why do you want to tell your story? Why do you want it to be public? Yes, it's great that there's more voices out there that help people feel less alone. But for me, what's the impact going to be? And If there are others involved who you want to reconcile with, what will the impact be for them? And that isn't by any means me putting people off telling their stories, quite the opposite. I've made seven years of asking people to carefully and strategically tell their stories to be able to help people feel less alone and to help people understand this issue. But it is a one for personal examination and it is one to think about very carefully. And in Mina's case... I think there, it sounds like perhaps she had some expectations that she didn't herself realise when she wrote this particular piece of art about her family life. And that's very common. We don't often realise what we want from things until they're done. I think I'm still processing. I still go back and forth with 
this very loud voice that says, stupid, stupid, why did you do that? Stupid girl. And there's the other side where I've spoken to people and they've said, no, you've had that sort of trauma in your life and it's your story. You have every right to tell it. You have every right. They have given up their right to have ownership of that. In order to make sense of stuff, I always try and go into the science and the psychology because I'm like, it almost like backs up what I'm feeling because otherwise I don't trust myself. I sort of think that, oh, I'm just stupid and pathetic. So I need that kind of science to back it up. So I'm really like looking into sort of like trauma as a child and stuff. And, you know, and they say even one, one moment of witnessing some domestic abuse or even just a really bad argument can have effects in adulthood. If you didn't have that adult with you at the time that comforts you and says, are you OK? Let me explain what just happened there. Don't worry, you're safe. And if you didn't have that, then that can have real issues later on yeah and I didn't have any of that and if my sisters sort of feel that they're okay and that none of that really mattered but I guess they were 10 and witnessing something and I don't know and I was five and witnessing something so maybe there's I don't don't know yes so that's kind of where I'm at and what I'm trying to unpick at the moment a year and a half into her estrangement Mina is still processing how she feels about certain things quite naturally many people process in different ways but for Mina, part of that journey was through her writing. I suppose that there is a difference to me between being able to write about something and going through that process of writing and therefore that discovery that you're talking about and harnessing those feelings versus actually then publishing it or having it put on somewhere. And that is a different level to me. Yes, I think there's definitely personal exploration through creativity and writing. But I think for most creatives, there is that need to express. Yes. (laughs) And there is that need to reach an audience. Uh And there's a need to feel, I think, by proxy understood and accepted for some people, loved, accepted, and for their story to be heard. Because I think for so many people in this subject in particular, family estrangement can be a bit like shouting into the void because somebody else isn't responding. And there's a gulf or an absence of a relationship. So there isn't a response. And so I think often creative responses allow us to get something vicarious back, something that might be very necessary for us when we publish things. And then Mina was saying, although she didn't feel this at the time, that looking back, there was a part of her that wished that there had been a moment where her parents accepted her because of that piece, or rather that they then realised what they'd done. Yeah, I think that's something very personal to Mina in that situation. And I think that some people may want their estranged family member to see and hear their piece, whereas for others, they don't. And they would rather they didn't understand it. There's not been anybody on either side that's tried to reconcile, other than one sister sort of sending a lot of abusive messages. And my response to those messages was just messages saying I'm sorry I'm really sorry I didn't mean any hurt you know my job and it's about mining personal experiences and nobody will know that it's us because obviously I changed everybody's name and etc etc but she wasn't really buying any of that she was like it's out there on the internet and I was like I've taken it all down so it's not there anymore and yeah so I didn't respond to any of the nastiness I just kind of responded with I'm really really sorry but to be honest where I'm at at the moment is I know that this is a really good thing I don't want to reconcile 
Maybe next year I might feel differently. But right now, this is a really good thing for me. I feel this massive weight has been lifted. Things are happening in my life now that weren't happening before. Good things just in terms of career and stuff. And I realized just how blocked I was and how scared I was of always putting myself out there because I knew that some things would be filtered through the family in a way and they always had an opinion on everything I was doing. Yeah, and now I just feel free to do whatever I want. But at the same time, like I am just really sad. I'm just really sad about it all. I'm just really sad that, God, I don't have family and like all these nieces and nephews. And sometimes I do a little bit of social media stalking still, you know, (laughs) it's just sort of, oh, that's what they're doing now. That's what she looks like now. Oh, wow, she's grown. I think it's a right thing that I'm not in their life. But at the same time, I'm really sad. But that doesn't make sense to me. (laughs) I'm just like, well, if I'm really sad, then maybe I should... I said to somebody recently, I feel like I need to grieve, but I don't know how to grieve for something that I know is the right thing for me. Yeah. So would you suggest then that people could, in their own time, if they felt this would would be a good way to explore it, would you suggest writing a piece? Yeah, I think that writing has commonly been found to help trauma and PTSD and processing in general. And there's so many good creative writing therapy teachers, courses, workshops out there that will really help you to grapple with various subjects and get a mirror and a perspective on those subjects for yourself. And it isn't only family estrangement that that's helpful for, it's a whole load of different experiences. I find creative writing very, very helpful for myself and my process. Perhaps more helpful, I think, than therapy has been in many ways. I think it's a very personal decision. Some people don't like writing And some people find painting more exciting to them or photography or other creative outlets. And I think that it can be very, very helpful. You've mentioned your own mental health and dealing with that. Have you developed any coping mechanisms that means that it's easier to to go moment to moment? Um, My coping mechanisms, well, I'm trying to like unlearn a lot of really awful self-sabotaging coping mechanisms which was a lot of my 20s and childhood really my coping mechanism now which is really going out of my comfort zone which is as soon as when I have the the really dark thoughts I I talk to somebody I I will phone a friend I'll phone a friend I'll talk to my partner I'll go and make an appointment with a therapist so it's yeah that is like my coping mechanism now I've realised I can't do this by myself. And I think a lot of my life up until now, I've just always had this attitude where I'd kind of go, crack on. I'd always say about everything, oh, I just crack on, just crack on with it. I just crack on with it. And I realised I wasn't cracking on. I was actually sort of breaking down, actually. (laughs) I'm on a podcast now talking about it, but um, really not a fan of talking. (laughs) So I guess the more I've reached out, the better doing something like this. Like six months ago, I couldn't have done this, which is probably why it then comes out in my arts, because... It almost one removed then I can talk about things like that but when I have to talk about things as me not a fan in the last episode with David we talked in length about his experiences of therapy and like many of the people who've kindly shared their experiences of estrangement on this podcast Mina also found seeking therapy as a central part of her journey I remember I laughed about a lot of things I sort of talked about the alcoholism and I talked about the domestic violence and stuff growing up. And I talked about this threat that was in our family and that was sort of like honour killings that my parents would always like threaten us with, like if we ever stepped out of line, like 
we could just dispose of you like that's what happens in our communities and we all keep it to ourselves so nobody would care so there was always this honor killing kind of threat growing up and I remember sort of like laughing about it and the therapist was just like yeah it's really it's really easy to normalize your trauma isn't it just using those sorts of words and I was like that was the first time actually that I'd really start to think about trauma when I saw this therapist for the first time last year so just hearing hearing how somebody else perceives what you've been through is just really helpful because you do sit back and think I'm the problem it's not really a big deal I should be okay all the shame and guilt that comes with it and you normalize it all and because you are the one that stepped away on your own you do sort of think that you are the problem just having somebody who can go it's okay, you're completely right. And these things that happened weren't right. And the way you've dealt with it is absolutely fine. And you know, you haven't done anything wrong, or whatever, or you know, however they put it, just hearing it all back is just really helpful from somebody else's point of view. Because then you realise, oh, gosh, no, it wasn't normal, was it? Having threats of being murdered really wasn't normal. (laughs) Do you know what I mean? (laughs) But you uh, put it into a little box of like, ah, but everyone goes through it, right? And also, of course, there are so many people that have it so much worse. So what is my problem? So all of those sorts of things. Up till now, I'd never heard of the idea of an honour killing in the way that you describe. All right, yeah. Which to me sounds really shocking. Yeah, just the threat of it, just the threat of knowing that this happens and that, that we could do this. It's quite common. And it's something that I didn't realise up until recently that it's still quite prevalent, actually. I thought it was very much... Uh, 80s 90s thing you know we've all gotten over it now but no there's communities that are still very closed that are like that still yeah I've just done a sort of community project with a group of women and I was just really shocked that it was still a thing mm. just a way of controlling really but yeah it's a community project that empowers women and girls through creativity So, yeah, I work with women from marginalised communities. We do sort of like activities with them on a weekly basis. It really, really helped the women to the point where some of the women took themselves out of very dangerous situations that they were in. And they felt empowered enough to do that. And we made sure that they were completely supported. Yeah, and they took themselves out of some really dangerous situations. And that was amazing. Yeah, that really is incredible. It's wonderful, the work that you do. I think one thing that gets me a lot is I know what people think of, like how families talk about the one person who isn't in the family anymore. So just growing up, I know how my half-brothers and sisters are spoken about. They were weird. They were always a problem, always had an attitude problem. They were always this, they were always that. And obviously you're in the pack. So you're like, yeah, that outsider. I know that one of my friends, you know, has a brother that nobody speaks to. And the way she speaks about that brother, he was always weird. Nan always said this about him. My mum always said this about him. So he was always like that. He was always difficult growing up. And I'm like, oh, man, I'm that person. (laughs) I'm that person in my family now, man. Well, to me, that gives reason as to why when you then did move away and then did disconnect, that nobody from the family got in touch with you aside from, as you said, that one sister who sent threatening messages. Yeah. That there is this mentality that there's the outsider and therefore we don't talk to that outsider yeah yeah 
then I think that's incredibly isolating for people. And it's hard to know what to say in that position and can be incredibly hurtful for people to realize that other family members may not be strong enough to be able to create a bridge and keep an individual family relationship going in spite of the collective conflict. I think that that is perhaps where the root of a lot of pain comes from in that situation because people might have expectations of other family members that they would keep in touch or that they would care or they would even want to understand their perspective and not simply side with, you know, or take a side, really. How have reactions from other people been? Have people agreed or disagreed with your decision? I've had half and half. I know who I can talk to and I know who I can't. (laughs) So I've had the reactions that are just sort of like really wide-eyed and disbelief. They are my good friends, but I realise, well, this is the one thing I can't. You're not the friend that I talk to this about. What, it's been over a year? What, and you haven't spoken to your mum? What, not not at all? Not even a phone call? What, you haven't even tried? That kind of thing. (laughs) And it's like, okay, fine. One thing I've noticed with those sorts of reactions is the onus is really on me. And I have to find myself going, they haven't tried either. It's not like I'm ignoring people's calls. Because I don't know how I'd react, actually, if I got a missed call or a voicemail. I sort of think, I don't know how I'd react. Would I, would I call back? Would I message back? I don't know. The door's always open. I've not blocked their numbers or whatever. They can call if they want to. So there's, there's, there's that call. There's that sort of reaction. And I made the mistake of speaking to somebody who I didn't actually know very well. But sometimes <clears throat> I do certain jobs and I end up oversharing. As I think you, there's something about working in the arts. You end up... <laughs> you work with somebody for a short amount of time and they almost become like family almost and you end up oversharing a little bit too much. Anyway, I overshared and this particular person sort of took it upon themselves to sort of say, do you know what you should do? You should write a letter every single month. At least that way, you know, you've done your part. You've you've tried to reconcile. And I was like, whoa, but I don't want to reconcile. And he was like, oh, but oh, but you should, just, just so you know that you've tried. And I was like, but okay whatever yeah so there's this kind of thing that they're your family and you should try and do whatever you can to try and reconcile that I guess and I just sort of thought oh okay you don't quite get it that sometimes things are really painful and really toxic and I didn't get into like my childhood and stuff so I just sort of thought maybe he's okay he hasn't really got the full picture but there is that kind of thing where yeah the reaction is you should try and do whatever you can and all that sort of disbelief I think they're trying to understand, but I don't think anybody really does. Not not really, unless you've been through it, I think. You know, I do have those friends that are supportive, but yeah, maybe they don't get the loneliness of it sometimes. Like, I'm really lucky. I have some really lovely friends around me, and I have the most supportive, amazing partner. So I'm really lucky. But I started having these major panic attacks a couple of months ago, where I suddenly started to think, oh, God, if we ever broke up, I've got no one. And it was those kind of panic attacks where, and they always happen in the supermarket, which is uh, very strange. I don't know what it is about supermarkets, but then I'd find myself like almost, you know, world spinning, gonna faint, just crouch on the floor in the supermarket, like that kind of cliched sort of scene that you might see in a film, just to try and steady myself. Because I just get this overwhelming fear of what the hell do I do? I would be completely alone in the world. Yes, I have friends. Friends have their own lives. 
friends have children, they're fine, they're great every now and then, but you can't rely on them. You can't rely on them. So I would literally be on my own. And that does really scare me. I'm estranged from them, but there's a massive family there that still have each other. And I'm just one person that's not there anymore. Then it's the shame and the guilt where I think, well, it's my own doing, isn't it? Why the hell did you write that stupid thing? Uh, yeah, I wrote it for a reason. I clearly needed to get it out there. And then as you've said before, you, you start your own community, your own network. Yeah. Yeah. My good friend said that to me. She said, you're not alone and you would never be alone. Friends are family and can be family. When you get out of your own head, you realise that maybe things aren't as bleak as, as you think they are. Could you tell me about your partner? Um, yeah, what do you want to know? <laughs> <laughs> I can ramble forever, so you might need to like, keep the rain, reins on me a little bit. <laughs> well, I'm assuming that he's the same person that you were with at the time of the estrangement. Yeah, yeah. So it's been going well. Uh, yes, yeah. Like We've been together, yeah, almost sort of 15 years now. Strangely enough, doesn't speak to part of his family either, his sort of mum. And that side of the family, he speaks to his father and and some of his other half-siblings, but yeah, not his mum and the other side. So that's interesting that we've kind of found each other. <laughs> it sounds to me like you must have supported each other through each other's experiences. Yeah, 100%. Because when we first met, he hadn't spoken to his mother since he left for university. Whereas I was still, you know, it was a difficult, difficult relationship with my whole family. But at least I always used to sort of say if stuff really got difficult, you know, I, I always sort of thought, I know I'll never be homeless. I've still got my bedroom back at that house. As much as I hate it, you know, I still do have a family. Whereas with him, it was like he would actually have nobody. Yeah. And he hadn't spoken to his mother for about eight years, I think, when we'd met. And then he actually reconciled with her a few years ago. He had some therapy and stuff and thought, oh, no, maybe I'll maybe I'll try and reconcile that. And he did. But then it's kind of like in the last couple of years, it's sort of fizzled out again. And I sort of asked him recently, I was like, how do you feel about that now? Because obviously he did had all that therapy to sort of reconcile with her. And he was like, no, don't regret any of it. Absolutely fine. I think I needed to have that journey. But now the estrangement to begin with back when he was at university was actually quite painful. Whereas this time he's in a totally different place and it's actually on his terms. He's happy that it's, it just fizzled out. There's no bad words. It's just like, ah, oh, mother hasn't changed. She's still that person. And he just allowed, allowed it to fizzle out. And he's like, I feel a lot stronger, actually. I'm not that little 18-year-old anymore. I'm a grown-up. Yes, I don't need him in my life. And I feel really strong about that. So he's kind of done it on his own terms. He sort of feels, I'm really happy that that's how he feels about it. And so he's just been a really great support for me, really, of trying to sort of unpick all of this and find a way to navigate it, really. That's really uplifting to hear. And I'm pleased that you both have each other for that. Thank you, Mina. Thank you very much. That's all right. <laughs> yeah, well, I hope you've got something there that might be helpful to people. Sometimes I do wonder that I just speak a load of crap. <laughs> <laughs> No, I'm sure that will be really, really useful. Um, and, and, you know, different people are going to hear different things and take away different aspects. Oh, thank you so much. You've been really kind and really lovely to talk to. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. And all the best for the rest of your week. Thank you. And same to you. And bring on the creative retreat. Yay. <laughs> all right, then. Bye. Bye-bye. <laughs>
Standalone is a really small charity and I started the charity seven years ago and have built it up to what it is now, which is supporting people in six different locations and also running a national campaign for students to get them more support and visibility in their higher education process. We've done a huge amount in such a small time. What we really need to ensure that we are around in the long term and that we can scale properly is more donations from people like you. If you support charities, you'll know that there are bigger charities that ask for donations all the time on TV, on billboards, on the tube, on the bus, and they have really huge campaigns. This is great, but as a small charity, we can't afford those kind of campaigns. So we're asking you, our committed listeners who are impacted by this issue, to support the charity. And if you can set up a monthly donation of just five or ten pounds, it makes a huge difference to what we can do for you. If you go to our Just Giving site, which is www.justgiving.com slash standalone, then you can make a donation, a one-off donation, and also set up a monthly donation if you're able to. Your funds go a really long way to help people with this niche issue. And it means a lot to me as a founder to see other people supporting the charity. A lot of people think that support should just be with them, but we really need everyone to contribute to make sure that this support can scale and grow and reach as many people as possible. Please do consider giving a monthly donation to Standalone or giving us a one-off donation on the Just Giving site. Thank you. As ever, thank you so much for listening to the Stand Alone podcast. Becca and I have been really thrilled with some of the feedback that we've received thus far, and the charity wanted to make this podcast so that the stories of our contributors can reach as many people as possible and help as many people as possible on their own experiences of estrangement. If you know somebody who could benefit from listening to this standalone podcast, then please do pass it on to them. And another way that you could help us out and reach new people is by leaving us a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And as ever, if you'd like to get in touch with us, then please do head to the Standalone website, www.standalone.org.uk, or you can message us on Twitter. We are at UK Standalone. In the next episode, we'll be meeting Nicola, who shares about her own experience of estrangement from both her parents and her children and its connection with her previously undiagnosed and now diagnosed mood disorder. They just don't understand what disabilities are. For them, a disability would be a physical impediment. I don't think they have much experience of what a mental disability is. My mum would say things like, she doesn't know what depression is. (laughs) She, She really doesn't know what depression is. She says, I've never suffered with depression. So she doesn't understand why somebody else would suffer with it. In her way of coping, you can overcome these things. The pressure of trying to overcome everything, that came from my parents. You can't fail, you've got to succeed at everything. You've got to push yourself forward. You've got to show you've got that metal. And I think they they see it as a weakness if you don't have the metal that they seem to have or that was impressed on them when they were younger. My mum will say things like, don't you have a backbone? That is very upsetting because 
I want to be accepted who I am, but I don't want to fail in my mum's eyes, you know, and that feels like I've failed. If you are feeling lower than normal or need immediate support with your well-being, please call Samaritans for free on 116-123 or make an emergency appointment with your GP. Standalone UK are such a small charity and so they cannot give out individual advice. If you want to talk about the podcast, head online and go to their Twitter page at UK Standalone to join in the discussion. Remember that Standalone has lots of advice on their website as part of their guides. The Standalone podcast was produced by me, Jay Sykes, for Becca Bland of Standalone UK.